ora tata katoa komatane toko ingoa no hanekariaho no kanata hoki kyoda welcome everyone my name is martin fisher and it gives me great pleasure to be here uh, with you today thank you so much for coming for this kind of mix of a book launch or a long time coming the story of naitahu's treaty settlement negotiations with the crown and also a bit of a panel discussion regarding those very negotiations and i am just blown away and humbled and honored to have these two gentlemen on the stage with me to to be kind enough to share some of their experiences being involved in those negotiations themselves tatipani o'regan and crispin lyson we had a fourth with us as well my boss uh, tamari tau but he's uh, come down a bit under the weather so he isn't able to join us today This is a very good thing. It's 2020. It's a crazy year. So it's a good example to be providing for all of us. But it it is truly truly an amazing amazing to see people here as well. Now, Tatipani uh and Chris uh need no introduction, but I will do so. Tatipani uh was the chief negotiator for the Naitahu Treaty Settlement. and essentially gave i would say much of his life to Tikareme the Naitahu clan he was the last chairman i believe of the Naitahu Māori Trust Board he was also a chairman of the Mafeta Incorporation a Māori uh, landowners trust on the west coast uh, a fellow historian i should say as well and um involved in the Naitahu claim but a whole series of litigation involving not just Naitahu lands fisheries forests involved with the iwi on a national level um it is truly sort of mind-boggling all the mahi and all the work um that Tatipani put in it and obviously he's a key key main character in the book so thank you so much Tatipani uh for being here thank with me Martin. today Kyoda Crispin Lyson also does not need uh introduction. He worked as uh a lawyer for Naitahu with Bell Gully Bottleware uh, and in charge of the litigation strategy during the breakdown of the negotiations from late 1994 to sort of mid 1996. I'm going to spend just about hopefully no more than 5 to 10 minutes giving a narrative of the negotiations so this will be hopefully become a little clearer to you. Um also involved in litigation i believe following settlement and also the prosecution of the northern boundary which was in uh involved in the Tetau Ihu or the top of the South Islands Waitangi Tribunal hearings in the early 2000s um got into parliament in 2005 that very crazy 2005 election um and was a minister of treaty negotiations very obviously interesting for our own purposes having worked for Naitahu and then also been the minister for the crown for easily the most treaty settlements that have been signed uh, in all of of uh, New Zealand's very relatively short modern treaty settlement process um but also attorney general um minister of arts culture and heritage and um and a whole series of other portfolios as well minister of intelligence services and various associate ministerships um and he left parliament with one of the most memorable valedictory speeches um i believe it was in 2018 
um, but now back in, in private practice. Uh, Tamadi, um, I have to mention, uh, Tamadi is uh, my boss. Um, he's given me the great honor and pleasure and just mind-boggling that I've been able to work with him at the Naitahu Research Center at the University of Canterbury um, for the last six years. Um, Tamadi is also Upoko um, of Naituahudiri. Um, he is Associate Professor of History, and as I said, he's the director um, of the Naitaha Research Center. Um, and uh, in many ways, this book it isn't possible um, without Tamadi, um, so I really wanted to speak to that, um, that opportunity that he's given me. Um, I am originally born in Hungary, but I grew up in Canada. That's where I get this funny accent for those of you who, who don't know me uh, in the crowd. Um, but yes, I've been, as I said, very fortunate to be working um, in the Naitaha Research Center for the last six years and had the opportunity um, to write this book, um, a story of the Naitaha Treaty Settlement Negotiations. So what I'll do now is I'm, the kind of format we're going to follow today is, like I said, I'm hopefully not going to spend more than five to ten minutes um, giving a breakdown of the negotiations in a, in a sort of narrative sense. Um, I know usually people read the book before they come to the word festival sort of session. Uh, not really possible as the book just came out two days ago. Um, so uh, I think many of you in the crowd will already know about some of this narrative. Um, but many may not, so I'm just going to deal with that, and then we're going to um, have a series of questions and discussions with both Tatsipani and Chris, and then we'll have about 10 minutes at the end for questions from the audience. Now, a story about the final chapter of the struggle, this seven generations long struggle to have the Naitahu claim resolved is always going to miss out on key, key people that were involved. Um, and that's not only in the negotiations themselves, but going all the way back to 1849, when we have the writing of first formal petition from Matiaha Teramorehu to Lieutenant Governor Ayer. And we can see this spanning and consuming um, families, consuming hapu, consuming the iwi in the struggle to have the claim addressed. Um, so I just wanted to um, provide a mihi to all of those um, uh, who have provided that tēnā uh, koto uh, koto mahi. Now the Naitahu claim, in a nutshell, is based on 10 land purchases between 1844 and 1864 over 34 million acres of land, um, easily up to about a half of New Zealand's land area. This was sold over 20 years from 1844 to 1864. Barely 35,000 acres of lands were reserved, fractions, fractions of the total, just under about 15,000 pounds for all of those lands, a couple of million dollars in today's dollar value. Um, in addition, with the loss of all these lands, you had another major branch of the Naitahu claim, the restrictions on access to Mahingakai. 
schools and hospitals that were promised were also not provided or not provided for many, many decades. And so this is the main outline of Takaremi, the Naita who claim. There are so many other aspects to the claim, people's individual claims, their families, um, but this formed the sort of main crux of the claim. And we're going to jump forward many decades into the 20th century, but just to reemphasize all of those fighting for the claim um, through these generations, petitions to parliament, commissions of inquiry, letter writing, just constant amounts of funding. And a lot of this story is available online, uh, the Naitahu website, Naitahu um, archives and history team that Tatsipani has done such amazing work with Takade Norton and, and Helen Brown, who I hope are somewhere here um, in the audience. Um, amazing work. So I encourage you, if you haven't seen this Naitahu website, to go take a look. They've got the deeds, petitions, a whole bunch of amazing information there. And it's really something unparalleled um, in terms of Iwi owning their own history and presenting it themselves. But I'll jump us forward into um, the late 20th century for the main topic that we're here for. 1975, you have the passage of the Treaty of Waitangi Act, and this establishes uh, the Waitangi Tribunal. It only can look at contemporary claims, and I know Tatsipani um, was imploring, I believe, the then um, chairman of the Naitahu Māori Trust Board, Frank Winter, that he had to push for more, um, but that's all that could have been achieved at that time. Ten years later, in 1985, we have the passage of the Treaty of Waitangi Amendment Act, and this provides retrospective jurisdiction to the Waitangi Tribunal. It can now look at claims dating back to February 6, 1840. Um, and, I, and I'll ask Tatipani in a moment to speak to some of that um, mahi that was put in um, with that notorious terrorist branch, I believe, of the Labour Party. Terrorist branch of the Labour Party, that's right. And obviously a whole bunch of students and Tatipani involved there. And this was huge. It was opening up a Pandora's box. The government had no idea what it was getting itself into. Um, You're quoting Muldoon now. <laughs> <laughs> Something I'd never do. <laughs> <laughs> they truly, they had no idea what they were getting themselves into. And, um, but it did allow um, for the hearing of historical claims. And the Naitahu claim was one of the first heard. It was certainly the largest inquiry. I believe Nati Fatua might have had their historical claims heard, but this was a tiny inquiry compared to this two-year marathon from 1987 to 1989. And this was very important for not Naitahu Fanui, who knew plenty about their own claim, but obviously Pākehā in the South Island and even North Island Māori as well. That was a key, key point there. Now, the Waitangi Tribunal report, the first of which is produced in 1991, finds overwhelmingly in favour of Naitahu. Takaremi. Massive amounts of land, forced purchasing. Some lands, there were no reserves left over because it had already all been sold away. Uh, North Canterbury is, is one example there. Banks Peninsula, 
there was just a whole series of issues. They didn't find in Idaho's favor on every aspect of their claims, but overwhelmingly they found in Idaho's favor. Very quickly, negotiations commence in 1991, and the amount of claims and the sheer diversity of claims, I mean, I, I can be corrected, but I think every type of claim is apparent in the Naitahu claim, except maybe for militarily induced that all patu or confiscation and perhaps specific geothermal claims. But everything else was there. And you could see that the first minutes of the meetings, just marathon, whole series of issues. Um, the reserves that weren't awarded, uh, Ponamu, uh, the Arahuda River, the Titi Islands, Raratoka Island, Fenua Ho, um, Mahinga Kai, um, just a whole wide swath of issues. And so it's quite amazing that within five years, very quick, certainly in Canadian standards, um, for a negotiated agreement. Um, but some of the first major issues that play, the establishment of Terunanga Onaitahu, legal personality. Naitahu is the only iwi that has a legal personality, and that was from the very um, strong, concerted efforts of Tatipani and the negotiating team. But the also, the second major issue to begin with was, what was the value going to be of the settlement? What was the quantum? And I'm going to ask Tatipani to discuss it with me shortly, this quantification of loss. And it was very important because there have been precedents set now and settlements are made in terms of those precedents. But Naitahu spent a lot of time in negotiations, especially with very well-funded, very powerful treasury officials in trying to establish Naitahu's loss. Hopefully we'll get into a little bit more of the specifics um, very shortly. But essentially, disagreement on the amount of the redress provided was, I would argue, the slow breakdown of the negotiations. They stayed in meetings for a couple of years. I believe one Naitahu advisor referred to those meetings as prayer meetings um, because there wasn't much else being done at those. You had the proposed return of three high country pastoral leases, Greenstone, uh, Routburn, and Alphen Bay. Much of that was never provided in the end. So you can see some of the difficulties. But essentially, you have a breakdown of the negotiations in late 1994. A very limited interim settlement was offered uh, at the same time that Waikato Tainui signs the first tribal settlement in relation to Dolpatsu. And the litigation strategy, which I mentioned, um, had been led by Chris um, you know, led into a, a far different kind of environment, adversarial, constantly trying to keep the crown on its toes. But eventually it was recognized that a settlement was going to be the best possible outcome in terms of a negotiation. Um, and with the help of Prime Minister Jim Bolger, who became quite involved um, in those negotiations, uh, you have a recommencement in 1996, the passage of the Terunanga Onaitahu Act. Initially, this bill was called the Naitahu Rangatiratanga Recognition Bill, not something you'd associate with, perhaps with Terunanga Onaitahu if you think of it today, um, 
that was at its core, was rangatiratanga, mana motuhake, sovereignty, independence. And so this was an important aspect to beginning, uh, recommencing these negotiations. And after all of those issues, you very quickly come to an interim settlement in June, return of Tutaipatu Lagoon, $10 million, that if the negotiations broke down, you wouldn't have to give it back, um, and, and the promise of Ponamu as well. By October, you have a heads of agreement in place, um, or an agreement in principle as they're known today, just before the first MMP election. Um, and from there, things had moved very quickly. Just over a year, a deed of settlement, which was, I believe, amazing that it was actually produced in about 13 months. This is something that should have taken years and years. Um, and legislation passed the following year in October 1998. Here we finally had an apology delivered by the Crown, by Prime Minister Jenny Shipley at Onuku Marai in Akaroa. I, would, you know, I say in the book that most Naitahu wouldn't call the settlement fair, but it was what could be achieved within um, the circumstances of that day. And it was an amazing achievement, and it has changed New Zealand forever. Now, I will stop speaking, um, and I'll just um, ask a few questions um, from my fellow panelists um, regarding their own um, involvement in these negotiations. Um, Tatipani, I was hoping you might be able to comment on some of that early period, the multiple streams taking place, um, fisheries, land, and forest. Because for us, it seems like it was just one thing happening, but it seems to be so much bigger. Indeed. Well, the the I think the thing that, uh, and I say this in the forward to the book, uh, Martin uh, has been extraordinarily well placed to uh, basically examine the settlement process and the negotiations because he was working in the Waitangi Tribunal and the Office of Treaty Settlements and then he has become, uh, right through the relevant period, he's had access to all that material there. And um, he then became uh, entwined uh, in the snares of Can University of Canterbury uh, with, uh, under the uh, guidance of Chief Fisherman Tamare Toe, unfortunately not with us today. <laughs> now, the... I think the first point I would make is one that uh, Martin's already alluded to, is that we've we had a whole lot of stuff going at the same time. The fisheries litigation started in 1986, uh, the same year uh, that the Naitahu claim was filed with the tribunal. The uh, and that was fought out, litigated, and finally uh, passed into law in 92 Acts of Parliament, 1989, 1992. And 
That was going on at the same time as the main Naitahu negotiation. The, we also had the forestry claim. Well, I know the New Zealand Journal of History uh, commenting on the, uh, said the, the forestry settlement was a nullity. It probably was, but uh, in large measure, it was an agreement anyhow, um, even if it didn't settle much. The, um, it uh, basically promised uh, what the parties would do if there ever was a settlement. <laughs> and the, um, it set up the Crown Forest Rental Trust and those sorts of things. Now, all of that litigation, negotiation was taking place. There was a whole battle over the State-Owned Enterprises Act uh, was going on. State-Owned Enterprises Act, uh, we feared, was going to allow the Crown to uh, dispose of assets that we'd be interested in having in a settlement. And uh, it was not far from Richard Pribble's mind either, I might say, even if Roger Douglas hadn't thought of it. <laughs> and the, um, so there was this enormous rush to get the claim actually filed before the State-Owned Enterprise Act came into force. Uh, there was a negotiation and the <coughs> bringing of Maridum together. We got so happy to hear her to lead a delegation to meet uh, David Longy and Geoffrey Palmer. And, um, of course, they were on pretty new ground. Uh, I'll give you a bit of backstory on that in a moment. But the interesting thing was that... Uh, uh, you, you probably know the history of it. Uh, uh, one night, uh, Muldoon got drunk and declared a snap election. Um, the, uh, uh, he made some quite famous quotes uh, on the... such as, uh, Prime Minister, you haven't got much time to get a general election underway. No. Nah. But neither have my opponents. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he, uh, uh, we, we, and the rest was history. The Labour Party woke up and found itself in government. <laughs> <laughs> to its enormous astonishment. And uh, the, uh, and there was, they found on their manifesto in the interregnum that, uh, They'd, uh, they'd decided to uh, alter the Waitangi, Treaty of Waitangi Bill uh, to make it uh, historically retroactive back to 1840. And uh, the... Uh, or make the tribunal... give the tribunal the extra jurisdiction. Well, that came about because 1975... I and some of my compatriots uh, failed to persuade our tribal leaders to go the whole hog with it. So they said uh, 75's the first phase of the Waitangi Treaty of Waitangi Tribunal Act was to deal with matters uh, occurring 
uh, after 1975. And we wanted it to go back for that. Uh, there was a lot of caution and a lot of opposition within the Labour Party caucus to that. They divided roughly 50-50. Norman Kirk uh, backed it but couldn't carry his caucus on it. Mm. And uh, the... Uh, so we spent the period in between. Martin's referred to the terrorist branch of the Labour Party. Well, it was an interesting little group. Uh, the treasurer was Bob Jones's sister. Um, the, uh, the president, the chairman of the terrorist branch was a man called Michael Hirschfeld. He was the, uh, at the time when I met him, he was the junior vice president of the Labour Party. His father was a metal merchant in Wellington. I used to buy bits from my boat there. The, uh, anyhow, one night uh, in the early hours of the morning when most of the annual conference of the Labour Party was snoring its head off but still in attendance, the, uh, uh, Michael moved the relevant remit uh, uh, and it became part of the manifesto. And to their great astonishment, when they became government, they were committed in their manifesto to uh, altering the Act. And uh, I take some small pride in sharing that backstory with you because uh, that was the thing that was going to open Pandora's box and everything else. And uh, the, uh, there was a, a huge amount of negative comment much of it from within the Labour Party. Mm. Uh, <coughs> now, the... Uh, we pushed that through there from the terrorist branch of the Labour Party. And uh, when um, Longy was overseas, and what they called the Fish and Chip Cabinet was meeting in his absence, and he's on the phone and he said, what are we going to do about this provision in the manifesto? And Koro Wethere, who's a member of the Fish and Chip Cabinet, as you would expect, um, he drove a, uh, a motion through and Geoffrey Palmer backed it solidly for a very simple reason, because he saw the formal recognition of the treaty as the foundation of his dreams about a properly formed constitution for New Zealand. And uh, uh, so the Palmer, the constitutionalist, and Wetere, in firm alliance for once, um, said it and Longy said, all right, well, it's done. And that's how it happened. And it's, it just reinforces my view that a lot of things in politics, good and bad, happen by accident. Uh, there's not much real understanding of the implications when they're undertaken. Chris may have a more developed view of the parliamentary process. <laughs> but I maintain my obdurate cynicism. <laughs> the <coughs> but the biggest challenge was we just had so much going on. Mm. And, of course, when the Naitahu claim became public, there was a howl of uh, agony 
about all the um, where the citizens who are going to lose their homes, uh, people who are going to lose their farms. The, the Russians are coming, have been replaced by the Maoris are coming. And um, it was a, a very difficult time. In my own personal life, uh, there was threats, there was arson, there was um, threats to my children. My children were ostracised in a middle-class Wellington school because they're a bunch of half-pie niggers. And um, they've done moderately well since. There's a <laughs> couple of PhDs amongst them and various other things. I don't think it scarred them impossibly. <laughs> but the, the point that I'm really wanting to make is it was a total set of activity and our time with the negotiations themselves, however intense, was had this continual backdrop of other litigation, not either forestry or it's this or it's that. And we were all the time as uh, the... Um, excuse me, that's unpardonable. I now beg forgiveness, Your Honour. <laughs> the... Um, the, uh, it's, the, that was the greatest challenge. But deciding on the quantum was quite an interesting thing. We realised very well that there was no way New Zealand could afford to meet the common law value of our loss. And I'm just talking about the reserves not awarded. The reserves that were promised and were not awarded, uh, that was... Uh, well, we had them valued quite early in this the negotiation because I argued that the Crown should acknowledge Naitahu's, even though it could never meet the cost of a full value of the loss, uh, they owed us at least the acknowledgement of what we'd lost, and we called this the peg and put a peg in the ground on the value. What was the value in 1990 terms of the loss of what is described in the uh, reserves as the, the New Zealand Company reserves, which is where the idea came from, was the tenths. Um, every tenth, after survey, every tenth acre of fair average value rural and urban, shall be reserved for the vendors to hold in perpetuity. Now, that's... Uh, you used to be able to buy that when I was a young teacher. That was in Jellicoe's little book on the New Zealand Company's native reserves. You picked up the government printer. <laughs> then it went on remainder. Uh, and we bought them up in bulk. Uh, but... Uh, the... What was a tenth of these reserves? What was the value of those reserves? And they were to be held in leases in perpetuity, uh, which is used against us later as a form of confiscation anyhow. But the, my point is really that this uh, came, was, was independently valued for the government and for our side. Credit Suisse First Boston... 
uh, did the valuation for us, and Valuation New Zealand did the valuation for the government. Uh, ours was 16 to 18 billion. The government's own valuation was 14 to 16 billion. So 16 billion dollars 1990 was the uh, midpoint. As soon as that figure was revealed, uh, the government went into uh, quite uh, top gear movement to frustrate the process, the, the officers of government, particularly Treasury. Mm. So there's a very early settlement uh, with Ngāti Whātua. With the tribunal hearing on Ngāti Whātua had not uh, even recommended a, a, a remedy because, as they said, uh, Ngāti Whātua just wanted an acknowledgement a remedy was not sought. And so the tribunal invented a remedy and in order to produce a remedy for Arake, for Bastion Point, uh, they uh, came up with the notion of need rather than right. And Treasury thought this, their heaven had fallen upon them. You know, it was with all its fruits because... Uh, Crown then desperately tried to establish a basis of remedy based on need. And, uh, and so all the tribes started the, the, the racing around trying to register everybody because the proxy for need uh, was population. And so uh, that, that's how the, that came about. And the uh, Treasury started making pronouncements about this and we were uh, indeed ourselves uh, desperately trying to get all those people who we knew in Itahu <coughs> that didn't. They came to all the tangies and worked on the marae and that, but they didn't register with the trust board. Uh, we were trying to get them all registered as hard as we could. And that was a major effort too. I had more people on my role as the Tika Māori <coughs> member of the Naitaka Trust Board, that's all those in the North Island and overseas, I had more people on my role than the other, seven, other six members had for the whole of Te we put together. Because Naitaka just hadn't bothered to register with the Trust Board. <coughs> Once you got your education grant, that was it. You forgot about it. And so <coughs> for my generation, <coughs> the arguments about population versus need uh, versus rights, uh, these sort of ideas all became major uh, elements in our heads. So what I'm... I've said more than enough, but what we're doing... What we were doing was, once we got this thing underway, the scene started changing all the time and we had to respond and evolve to deal with it as we went. It was an interesting tussle, but essentially the prospect of the peg at 16 billion knocked them out. So that's why they cut a deal very quickly with Ngāti Whātua and 
by Minister Doug Graham's own advice to the um, uh, to the media, uh, we had to do something uh, to establish a baseline for the Tainui settlement. Uh, Bob Mahuta of Tainui said, well, we had to have some sort of baseline because otherwise we'd I'll be driving down the road in a Falcon and Tevin will be driving down the highway in a, in a Mercedes. And um, <coughs> Graham made some statement as the essential thing is we've now set a benchmark for settlements. He was trying to calm the cattle. And uh, the, uh, the settled down his parliamentary colleagues and uh, he said this will stop Naitahu uh, plundering us for his term, Brazilians. And um, it went into the uh, business newspapers of the, of the day. And uh, we've got it nicely ensconced in the Naitahu archive, quote, line by line, uh, together with accompanying uh, choruses from me. Um, but anyhow, those things were happening and we were having to adjust. Now, the fact of the matter is the, not, the figure in the settlement of 170 million, uh, of course, was accompanied by the uh, process. The bolt-ons. The bolt-ons. Uh, and... Doug said, uh, Jim Boulder said to me one day, uh, well, 170 million uh, plus uh, uh, Rarotoka, it's uh, an island in Faber Strait, Tutaipatu up at Kaipoi Reserve, uh, and Ponamu. And it's, is it agreed? I said, well, uh, he said, you can't have more than Bob. And I said, well, I'm not negotiating for Bob. I'm negotiating 50% of the land area of New Zealand. I'm, neg I'm not negotiating about a river and a few puddles in Waikato. <laughs> and the, um, said, I don't care. Don't care. You can't have more than Bob. And I said, well, I want my bolt-ons. He said, what are bolt-ons? And I said, well, Bob's got relativity. Okay, you can have relativity. And I swallowed quietly and brought a few ma other matters up, but I walked out of that meeting with relativity. And the, uh, uh, that relativity agreement has since produced another 300 and I think 22 million and uh, uh, if Andrew Little ever uh, accomplishes Ngāpuhi, uh, which Chris failed to, I might say. Um, <laughs> well, give me a chance to comment on <laughs> uh, Then uh, uh, that goes on giving until uh, 2040. And so although it's probably done most of its giving now already. So 
it's a bit of the background, but really, it's not just an event that took place, a one negotiation with a closure. You talked about the size of the document. Uh, I think it is the, the settlement deed of Naitahu deed of settlement is the second largest by two pages uh, legal document in New Zealand history, <laughs> uh, which bears out your comment, Mark. Kaki. Thank you so much for that, Tatipani. Um, provides uh, amazing first-hand experience in these stories. Uh, but those difficulties with the quantum, um, as I was saying, leading directly to this, this breakdown. Um, and so I was wondering, Chris, if you could speak to some of, of, of working with Tatipani, um, but also leading this litigation strategy. And, and what was that like um, for you at the time? Well, thank you very much. This, thus far, it's been the most enjoyable panel I've ever been on. <laughs> the last time I was on a panel like this, Fran Wilde, former mayor of Wellington, you never disagreed with Fran Wilde, she said to me, would you like to interview Vladimir Ashkenazi? And I said, yeah, fine. I was minister for the arts at the time while well, I was a cock case the night before because I didn't know what I'd ask him. But we got on to Shostakovich and Stalin and I couldn't shut him up. <laughs> And, but, but the first point I want to make is to acknowledge Sir Tipani, um, in my experience as Treaty Negotiations Minister, negotiations succeeded where you had strong leaders. And so I think of Tamati Kruger with Tuhoi, Api Mahuika with Nati Perot. Uh, he mentioned Napui. They call it Napui of a thousand holes for a very good reason. Uh, whenever I met with Napui, I felt like the former Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Willie Whitelaw, who used to dread flying into Belfast and meeting with the Catholics and the Protestants, and he would begin meetings by saying, good morning, folks, can we agree what day it is? <laughs> that, that's how I felt negotiating with Napui. Um, and, of course, there are places like Whakatohia, who nev never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. And so you've got your hat, and I can't emphasise enough the importance of leadership, uh, and uh, this iwi was so brilliantly uh, led by Sir Tipani in the tough times. And uh, he mentioned the, the sorts of abuse that his family used to get. Um, I remember how tough it was, and Jim Bolger telling me that he'd been told uh, by his colleagues in the party in the South Island, if you sign that agreement, you'll lose every seat. And he did and they didn't, but they more than made up for it this year. Uh, <laughs> so, and it's not because of Naitahu, it's because of their own stupidity. <laughs> but can I simply say what a... But above all, you know, life should be fun. And coming to work every day to sue the butt off the crown used to be a most enjoyable experience. Let me, <laughs> let me tell you how it started. Um, the Y27 report had come out and made a number of recommendations. It had, that, that panel had been chaired by uh, a Murray Lancourt judge called Chick McHugh. And we were being mucked around by the Crown, which was kicking for touch all the time. 
And so he said, right, well, we'll apply for binding uh, recommendations under the SOE Act. And it was, there was going to be a preliminary conference in the tribunal, so I didn't bother to go down. I sent my staff solicitor, who's now a very successful partner in Belgali and Christchurch, Garth Galloway, sent him down to junior to someone, uh, because I couldn't be bothered. It was only a procedural conference. And O'Regan and co. came back uh, and said, well, we didn't have Chick McHugh, we had Eddie Jury. And Eddie Jury has come in and adjourned our case off and said, Naitahu's had a lot of time, and it's time for other iwi to get a chance. And so we said, well, let's sue him. And so we uh, sued the Crown and we sued uh, Judge Jury and we sued the Tribunal. And every time the Crown made a move, like Land Court wanted to sell some farms, we injuncted them. God, it was fun. Uh, and <laughs> we basically became highly litigious. And a little insight, just one of those interesting things, uh, Eddie Jury was represented by Geoffrey Palmer. And uh, my favourite little piece of warfare was I was reading the statement of defence that Geoffrey had filed. And it put, he denies the allegations in the statement of, uh, statement of claim and says further that he relied on an opinion, blah, 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 which said he was authorised to act. And I was reading the statement, this is all lawyer's rubbish, uh, I was reading <laughs> the, the statement of defence and said, good God, Palmer's inadvertently waived privilege in his client's documents, in his client's opinions. And so we applied to the court for an order that the opinions that Sir Geoffrey had written for, Sir, for uh, Eddie Jury be handed over. And I always remember uh, Sir Geoffrey starting off uh, before Justice McGeckin saying, this is a major constitutional case. <laughs> and McGeckin said, no, it's not. It's a question of whether or not you've inadvertently waived privilege in your client's <laughs> documents. So anyway, we got the document, and the opinion of Sir Geoffrey was a bit like a Wagnerian opera. It looked good. <laughs> But it went on and on. <laughs> and I didn't under understand a word of it. But that was the approach that we took. If the Crown moved, we slammed them with, uh, a, a, well, people call it a writ, but writs were abolished in 1984. But it's more, it's more colourful than saying we slammed them with a notice of proceeding. But we just kept on suing them. And uh, we, we ground them into the earth. And it's a very interesting uh, point that with the greatest of respect to the judiciary, basically they're institutionally incompetent to design things, but where they're very good and where they played a major part in the treaty settlement work that was done uh, was that they could stop the Crown doing things. And uh, all those interim orders that were flying around, we were uh, very irritating uh, to the Crown, but we got, we got a result. And... Um, but I can't begin to tell you how important that meeting that Sir Tipani had uh, with Doug and Jim was pivotal to the life of the iwi because that relativity clause was obtained by Naitahu but has never been obtained again. And when I was a minister, uh, the officials were getting quite worried about it and I said, well, how about we just play with a straight bat? It's a matter of contract. Can't be undone play with a straight bat and the, the consideration for it because occasionally you get the sort of mm. KKK brigade going mad about relativity clauses. The, the, the agreement was a billion dollars 
in 1992 dollars was set aside for treaty settlements. 17% went to uh, Tainui in respect of Ropatu. 17% went to uh, Naitahu for the various losses that it had suffered. And anything that was above a billion dollars in 1992 settlements, uh, there would be an accounting for Naitahu and for Tainui. And they were, as it were, the early settlers, and so that was only fair. Now, that figure has gone above uh, $1 billion in 1992 dollars now. Uh, not very little was done between 1999 and 2008. In my period, um, I had about 60 settlements, uh, and so that figure has been breached. A billion dollars was never going to be enough. It was only always going to be a lot more than that. But the important principle was, and it's a matter of fairness, that if people were prepared to settle early, as Naitahu and Tainui did, to get the whole thing going, then it was very important uh, there that, that there be that relativity clause. And my personal view is that there would... Uh, the, the, there was a very good argument that there should have been a relativity clause not only for compensation and monetary terms, but for other forms of relief. So, for example, when I dealt with uh, Te and gave it legal personhood, that is a much better mechanism for dealing with iconic pieces of landscape than the silly notion of transfer and transfer back. And <coughs> Aoraki... Uh, the provision in relation to Aoraki has still not been yep. uh, implemented by Naitahu, and I hope it never will be, because pro uh, uh, the, uh, the idea of transfer and transfer back went, goes to 1978 when former minister Ven Young transferred Mount Taranaki to the iwi of Taranaki, and they all went down to Owai Marae and Waitra to celebrate the return of the mountain to find that it had been transferred back. And several... Uh, and the negotiators who negotiated that were for many generations scorned. So the relativity clause is a matter of justice. It's also a matter of contract, and it's extremely important. And what uh, Sir Tepany uh, obtained there was very important. But I'll stop there so that people can fire some questions at us, if you like. You were going to ask me about Taonga. Yes, and the apology. Yeah, well, the apology... Um, I always remember there was one case uh, involving Naitahu and Natiapa where one of the judges, it could have been the former Chief Justice Elias, said, oh, well, the apology's not in the operative part of the statute. It's sort of symbolic. And I said to myself, only someone who's never given an apology on a marae could make such a silly statement, with the greatest of respect, um, which whenever you say with the greatest of respect to a court, it means there's no respect. Uh, <laughs> And uh, I recall standing on Marae time and time again apologising, and, and the best example would be Parihaka, uh, 17 June 2017, and those eyes just staring at you. Um, does he mean it? Is the Crown sincere? An apology is a hugely important part uh, of a treaty settlement. I'd venture to suggest the most important part, because the, as Satipani's told you why the quantum doesn't, you know, it's... It's not nominal, but it's, it's not quantum merit in legal terms. It's not damages. But it's almost as hard to negotiate. As and it's very quantum. hard to negotiate mm. because you are talking about 
very, very important factual matters. And to stand up there representing the most powerful entity in the state and apologise for wrongdoing uh, is phenomenally important and every iwi regards it as such. And I can tell you now, the important thing, for example, about Parihaka was that it was the first time the Crown admitted and apologised for rape that had occurred at Parihaka and some days afterwards, I, one of the, um, there are some really nasty elements out there, wrote to me and said, how dare you apologise for that sort of thing? It didn't happen. So this stuff is very, very sensitive and apologies are extremely important. Perhaps um, we could finish with um, your opinion on that as well, Tatsipani. You're saying the negotiation was almost as difficult as that quantum was the delivery of that apology, did it fulfill what you were looking for? At that well, point? it was very challenging. Uh, and I, I agree very much with Chris about its importance. And, but it, unfortunately, it becomes quite difficult to keep reminding our own young people of the significance of that agreement. And... Uh, in the general view of things, you know, the Crown can do no wrong. Well, you know that's not true. And, but there is a general principle. Uh, that's why you have ministers to go wrong, because uh, <laughs> the Crown can't. And the Crown lives at a building in London, you know, and uh, uh, what is the Crown? It's a concept, a notion. But the general thesis is that it can do no wrong. Uh, I think the most uh, important thing about the apology in Naitahu's case was what it says about Rangatiratanga or Rangatiratanga. And it is enormously important uh, that a, a tribal nation uh, should be able to decide on what its own memory is. Uh, it should be able to say who its members are. Uh, and it should be able to do a range of things in terms of the treaty, uh, which uh, the Crown's duty is to recognise rather than permit through mm. the parliamentary process. And so... It's often argued, I'm often asked, what's your greatest achievement? And I said, well, apart from my, the fact that I managed to keep the same wife for nearly 60 years and, uh, and my children, which I do you know, quite quickly, but uh, the other big thing I've done is I secured the legal personality of our people. And you might say, what's it matter? Because Parliament, until that exercise, uh, has been the source of all your identity. Parliament says who you are. Parliament just authorises your name. Uh, it, Parliament does everything. Parliament decides you're a citizen or you're not a citizen. Uh, and um, 
the general view of the parliamentary process was uh, that uh, Māori were individual New Zealanders. They weren't arguing about that. But that the tribe uh, did not exist. There was a group of people who were connected. And the, the iwi, the idea of a rangatiratanga having an autonomous identity of its own as a group, uh, independent of the Registrar of Incorporated Societies or the Registrar of Companies or all those other forms, that the iwi should have a legal personality of its own, as does the Bishop of Christchurch or the Bishop of Wellington. You know, basically the hat stays there and different people move in underneath it over time. But legally it has an independence. <coughs> and um, our lawyer... Uh, through the trial tribunal process, the late Paul Kem of Auckland. Uh, he kept impressing this upon me and I came to understand that I'd never really thought about legal personality. I thought limited liability company was a way of protecting directors from being sued uh, or being able to sue them, or, but independent of their families. And... Uh, it's quite interesting that this was recognised very early. There's a man called Rees who was in Parliament in the 1870s. He uh, wrote a memorandum to the uh, uh, parliamentary a memorandum document uh, to his colleagues. Uh, and uh, he said, it is an extraordinary thing uh, that we and I paraphrase them, we who have spent the last 300 years evolving the joint stock company should come here to this remote place uh, and find the concept and the people uh, completely seized of it. It's already in existence. And then all we've done is set about destroying it. And so recognition of the iwi and the tribe as a people as having a legal personality of their own. It does not come from Parliament. Parliament's only function is to recognise it. And uh, that is the thing which I regard as my most important uh, contribution. Uh, most of the other stuff lies in like a demolition, demolition site around me, but the, that is a fundamental thing. And um, I think it will be uh, seen as it is the closest we'll get to functional recognition of the rangatiratanga principle. Thank you so much for that, Tatsipani. Apologies, we can't do questions, but I'm sure we all appreciated how amazing it was to have these two gentlemen up here to share these stories with us. So thank you both, and thank you to the crowd uh, as well for coming here today. Kia ora.